0: This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank
1: you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for June 17th, 2019. Religion is a hot topic for debate just about everywhere, Everyone seems to think that they're qualified to throw in their two cents, not least myself. But in this podcast, I'll talk to someone who is really qualified to talk about it.
0: Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice.
1: Coming up on today's podcast, in the pre-scientific era, the story of Genesis was also a substitute for science because we didn't know the origin of the world or the universe.
2: Well, I think that people didn't think about origins in, in the way that we tend to think about it now. Um, But to to the uh, extent
1: that they did, they believed Genesis literally. Mm -hmm. And the
2: idea that Genesis was literally six days of creation started in about the 17th century. Yes. And we know this quite clearly because Augustine wrote a book called The Literal Meaning of Genesis in about the 5th century. And the first thing he says was, this can't be straightforwardly an account of what happened...
1: That's coming up in a couple of minutes, but first, I want to thank all my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate them all. In case you don't know, Patreon donors basically donate a book or two per podcast or per month, and that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. So if you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. It's worth paying attention to what's been happening in Hong Kong. In case you don't know, Hong Kong was a tiny British colony. It's one of the most densely populated places in the world, even though it still keeps some rural areas. It crams its people into a city that uses every square centimetre to the utmost. In 1898, Britain obtained a 99-year lease on what's called the New Territories – And those of you who are quick at math will have worked out that by 1997 they had to hand the territory back to the by-then communist China. But Hong Kong was a roaring capitalist success story, and China didn't want to go killing any golden egg-laying geese. So Deng Xiaoping agreed a form of government called One Country, Two Systems – Basically, that meant that China would remain a communist dictatorship, but Hong Kong would be a mostly democratic and totally capitalist territory with a strong independent judiciary, even though Beijing would have ultimate sovereignty. Don't get starry-eyed about this. Many of the elected officials in Hong Kong know that they can take democratic principles so far and no further. The rule of law is much stronger, and politics and the media are much, much freer in Hong Kong than in China, but that freedom is tempered, in part, by a knowledge that if they exercise it too much, it might not last. One example was the case of the staff of Causeway Bay Books – This was a Hong Kong bookstore that sold books about mainland Chinese politics, which would be strictly banned there if anyone was stupid enough to try to publish them. For that reason, the bookstore was popular with visitors from mainland China. In 2015, five of the bookshop staff went missing in extraordinary circumstances – It seems clear they were variously kidnapped or subjected to extrajudicial arrest by the Communist Chinese authorities while in Thailand, mainland China and in Hong Kong. They were imprisoned for months and put under enormous pressure to renounce their Hong Kong citizenship, confess to crimes, repudiate their lawyers, disown their families, refuse help from the Hong Kong police and authorities and the real target – Disclose lists of Chinese customers who bought their books. The message was clear. The 7 million people in Hong Kong can play democracy all they want, as long as there's no suggestion of an attempt to export even a shred of it to the mainland. China suffered huge international embarrassment over the affair. They hate this, but they were willing to ride it out, showing how they hate any hint of political expression even more. The five victims are still imprisoned or under house arrest in terrible conditions in China. Then, this last February, the Hong Kong government proposed the Fugitive Offenders and Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Legislation Amendment Bill, better known as the Extradition Law. This was clearly introduced under pressure from China and would basically allow anyone the Chinese government wanted to be extradited from Hong Kong without much fuss. In short, it would make future Causeway Bay Books cases legal and avoid all the messy business of having to go around kidnapping people. The people of Hong Kong do not have a strong grasp on freedom, but they're not willing to give up what they have. On April 28th, 130,000 people marched in protest against the proposed law. Other international and online protests followed, and the Hong Kong government proposed three amendments, limiting the scope of the law somewhat. Then, on June 9th, more than a million people, according to organisers, marched, chanting Scrap the Evil Law and calling for Carrie Lam, effectively Hong Kong's Prime Minister, to resign. Three days later, there were more enormous protests, with many people going on strike or closing their businesses. The protesters clashed with police and aimed to physically prevent legislators gaining access to their council to prevent them from enacting the law. Then, on June 15th, Carrie Lam suspended the new law indefinitely. That has not stopped the protests – On June 16th, the day before this podcast is published, 2 million people protested. This in a territory with a population of only around 7 million. Police were obviously ordered not to interfere and the protest was entirely peaceful. Carrie Lam apologised for proposing the new law, but the protesters don't believe this is enough. They want her to resign. As I'm recording this, I can see that Joshua Wong, a leader of the 2014 pro-democracy protests, has been released from prison, an obvious move to placate protesters. There are two things to learn from this. First, the Chinese Communist leadership have absolutely no regard for democratic values. But, secondly, that doesn't mean that they are immune to public opinion. They take unrest very seriously. They will do everything to try and stop it. Sometimes offer concessions, but other times lock up peaceful protesters, kidnap booksellers, or mow down students with tanks. These protesters are bravely walking a very fine line. We live in interesting times. Do
0: you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think.
1: On the line now, I have Mark Vernon. He's a psychotherapist and a writer. He's got a degree in physics, two degrees in theology, and a PhD in philosophy. And if that doesn't sound educated enough, he's also written books covering subjects from friendship and belief to well-being and love. His next book, A Secret History of Christianity, is published at the end of August by John Hunt Publishing. And Mark, I was watching some of your videos. One of them uh, was entitled Why Christianity is is failing now you're coming at this obviously from a christian point of view but why is christianity failing
2: well perhaps behind a lot of those qualifications uh, is a, a kind of search uh particularly in around and through christianity mm-hmm. you know I, I used to be an anglican clergyman in fact um and um my own sort of personal struggles uh, with christianity um i wonder whether they reflect things that other people will connect with uh, maybe even Um, things going on i think particularly in western culture um, Mm -hmm. maybe uh, particularly in northern europe um, i think to some degree in the u.s as well Mm -hmm. Um, and so i'm trying to think about that trying to really understand what that might be about and the conclusion i've come to is not the problem is not actually what's often said which is that christianity needs to be demythologized You know, it belongs to the medieval period, if not before, um, you know, the kind of arguments around atheism. Um, There is some of that, but I think that actually that's rather a a small fraction of the people that have become disillusioned with Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, And a bigger issue is actually how um, people are seeking more direct and authentic spiritual and religious experiences um, than particularly institutionalized forms of Christianity offer them now. Um, Going to church offers you a relationship with the church. Um, but that has become uncoupled, I think, to quite some substantial degree, um, to a relationship with the spiritual dimension in life, um, and it's actually making a better connection with that dimension rather than feeling that dimension has somehow been superseded that I'm trying to get onto.
1: Well, you mentioned the the atheist uh, point of view there, which I guess is seeking a rationalist rather than a religious meaning to life, if I'm not using that phrase wrongly, but. Isn't it true that maybe there are people who are into having their personal angel divined or who want to go to uh, go to psychics or whatever and exhibit some types of supernatural beliefs, but they're just not so deeply grounded because there is a rationalist explanation to the world?
2: Well, I think that what's happened with the rationalist explanation um, is that and what was initially a kind of methodology, a way of investigating the world, and became an ontology, um, Mm -hmm. to use the kind of philosopher's words. It became a way of assuming that the world actually was. Um, Now, this is, um, you know, understandable to some degree, because technology and many of the accounts of what happens in life – By science clearly are very productive and and can take us a long way into reality Mm -hmm. Um, but they do so at a massive expense which is essentially cutting off great chunks of reality as well Um, for example in particular uh, well the the most obvious one would be the reality that enables us to speak now and the reality of consciousness self-consciousness meaning um, the magic that is words that enables us to um, convert as it were sound waves into actual communication
1: pause, um, pause on that, that pause on that thought it, for a minute pause on that thought for a minute because uh-huh. that's, a, that's, a, that's a good point and you're not saying it exactly but perhaps a cruder expression of what you're saying is that science doesn't explain everything which is true but number one that's not a weakness of science. I've heard one rationalist comedian saying, no, of course, scientists can't explain everything. If they could, they'd stop. But I think a more devastating critique of that is that the religious explanations aren't any better.
2: Well, I think two things there. First of all, I don't think it's that science can't explain everything as in any in parenthesis, but one day it might. Um, I think that actually science works... By saying we will approach the world by trying to trying to explain what we can through our method, mm-hmm. and anything that can't be um, approached through that method, we um, won't be able to explain at all. We won't be able to touch at all. For example, um, so it's not as so a So well, I think actually the very premises of science science can't itself explain. So for example, you know, science rests on the assumption that there are laws um, going through nature and tries to discern those laws. Oh, that, that's um, a bit unfair. It's, explain, it's, it's, it is, no,
1: no, Mark, explain, Mark, Mark, that's a bit unfair. Mark, Mark, report. that's a bit unfair. Science rests on the premise that there appears to be consistencies, and if you follow those consistencies, that leads you to conclusions. Now, science uses the word law in a particular way, which is perhaps uh, um, from a linguistic point of view unfortunate, but Scientists will tell you nothing can be proven outside of some very narrow areas of mathematics and that all knowledge in science is provisional and until you find something else to contradict it.
2: Yeah, my argument is not with how much um what science proposes and tests and predicts and all those good things that science can do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not with that so far it's not really with that. It's that science itself rests on taking a certain approach to reality, running with that approach as much as you can,
3: mm-hmm. um, but
2: that doesn't mean you've captured the whole of reality in your approach. Um, and particularly uh, things like you know, why it is that the human mind can resonate with reality um, and understand it. Um, but but, but has, claims- has
1: religion captured <laughs> any of those any better?
2: Well, I think that religion tried to do it differently. Um, it doesn't actually seek to explain um, what it... Uh, um uh, offers um, is a way of kind of navigating through reality. Um, so, for example, myths. You see, I don't think were early scientific attempts to try and explain things before science itself really got going. And uh, myths are stories, and um, they're patterns of a different kind, and um, that enable people to navigate through life not by explaining it in an objective sense, but by knowing it subjectively to discern, you know, the patterns, as it were, much more like psychology perhaps than like physics. Mm-hmm. So, I just think that. Um, Religion is 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 uh, it's not unrelated to science, but it's a different approach to reality, and and ultimately, actually, I think complements science. The two quite go together. Um, you might say there are certain myths that are woven into science in order for the science to get going. Uh, okay, life, po- po- for example, pause. I'll I'll, I'll
1: stop you on that reality. one as well. And and you're yeah. you're right that myths have another function as well, but. In the pre-scientific era, the myth of, for example, Genesis, I don't want to say myth in a a disparaging way there, the the story of Genesis, was also a substitute for science because we didn't know the origin of the world or the universe.
2: Well, I think that people didn't think about origins in in the way that we tend to think about it now. Um, But to to the uh, extent
1: that they did, they believed Genesis literally, Now, it wasn't only a a literal explanation of our origins, but it did serve that purpose.
2: Well, I think, I mean, this is partly a historical, almost an empirical question. Mm -hmm. And the idea that Genesis was literally six days of creation started in about the 17th century. Yes. And we know this quite clearly because Augustine wrote a book called The Literal Meaning of Genesis in about the 5th century. And the first thing he says was, this can't be straightforwardly an account of what happens, as it were, with a camera rolling. I mean, he didn't put it like that because he didn't have cameras. Yes. Um, because, for example, he says straight away, um, it can't have been the first day, because the first day in the Northern Hemisphere is night in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can't be talking about that. This is a, an account of things that's trying to reach to a completely different level. And for Augustine, the literal meaning meant the deepest, as it were, mystical um, truth that the Genesis narrative was trying to get through. And when you worked on yourself, worked on the text explored things in the richest possible way um poetically met- metaphorically spiritually um you know forming yourself in relation to gen uh, to creation as much as it we're just studying it in a test tube mm-hmm. then you might get to the literal meaning of genesis
1: yeah i'm and actually on your not- side i'm actually on your side on that yeah. and and uh, you're correct that it is a relatively recent development that people believed that, the, for example, the Genesis story was literally true. That's something that's only cropped up in the past couple of hundred years. And the people, it is without doubt that the people who wrote that story down didn't believe that it was literally true in the way that perhaps some fundamentalist Christians do. Do you sort of roll your eyes up to heaven when you hear people fighting that argument?
2: Um, in some ways. Um, I mean, I think it's 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 something about the times that we're in. Um, I think that um, there's been a kind of flattening or a narrowing of meaning, um, uh, or at least the the sort of meanings that people feel they can really um, access um, or sort of let seep into their lives, you might say. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I work as a psychotherapist, as you say, and, um, you know, I think part of the mental health crisis that that we face in, again, in Western culture, is partly because people's sense of life has become so kind of flat and narrow and literal in the pejorative sense and um, it's not it's not really rich enough to feed us um, so um, you know fundamentalism is, is wrong um, not just as it were because it misunderstands the bible but i think it's wrong because it misunderstands what it is to be human um, but it is a reaction against the kind of scientistic um, hegemony um, that has insisted there's only really one set of truths um, and, and my sense again, part of what it is to move on from the new atheist movement of maybe a decade or two ago mm-hmm. um, is that just humanly, people have realized that it's not a, a good way to live. It doesn't actually feed us. Wh- which isn't. So are now looking, looking to sort of re as it were, rather than demythologize.
1: Oh, okay, I'm interested. You brought up the new atheist uh, movement, if you can call it a movement. And also, you mentioned there when you were speaking that that way of viewing the world isn't rich enough to feed us. Expand on that for me.
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, take uh, a, 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 an example, um, a mental health problem. You know, someone might start talking about their feeling uh, depressed or um, feeling anxious, um, say in terms of their amygdala firing or their serotonin not working properly or, um, so, you know, something like that, a rather... Uh, Um, biochemical mechanistic approach to things Mm. Um, but the the minute you start talking to them you realize that there's there's a story here um, there's all sorts of other elements and factors um, uh, playing into that and moreover you know as it were um, when they took the pill that was supposed to adjust say a serotonin level or um, some other um, biochemical aspect of themselves it it wasn't enough Um, even if it eased their suffering um, it still left them feeling only kind of a, a few steps further forward. And they realized that to be human is to deal with a problem like that in you know, in all sorts of ways, many multidimensional ways, not just to think of yourself as a sort of biological robot.
1: Can I give you a counter example there, Mark? Because I've been to various countries, uh, Russia and various other countries in the former Soviet Union, and it strikes me that a lot of the depression, I mean, economic depression, but also kind of a societal depression that you have there, comes from the falling away of the meaning that people got from the idealism of the Soviet Union and how people were constantly being urged to be part of a community and so forth that's fallen apart religiosity has increased so we see uh, Vladimir Putin for example hanging out with his former KGB buddies in the uh, who who were the the leaders of the Orthodox Church so my my point is that That's not exclusively something that's uh, in the domain of religiosity, is it?
2: Uh, No. And um, I mean, I don't know about it directly um, in the way that you do, but um, it's not hard to, um, you know, as a kind of broadly Western liberal kind of person to find um, the stories about say, the Orthodox Church and Russian nationalism and so on, um, you know, quite disturbing um, the Mm -hmm. way that seems to be going. Um, But, you know, that kind of feeling you belong to a group um, and in particular, feeling you belong to a group because you feel under threat from other people, from other groups, um, which, you know, on a national scale is partly what nationalism plays into. Um, that certainly is a way to try and find meaning. Um, it's, yes, uh, but prior to so that, in the, Sovi- in it's, the it's Soviet times...
1: Yeah, but prior to that, in the Soviet times, for whatever, you know, hardships they had, there was, and there was a lot of cynicism, but there was an element of community there, which has fallen away since and which is, you know, the damage of that is uh, visible. And, and there are people who hanker after the Soviet times, when, you know, neighbours were neighbourly, and it wasn't such a hard-bitten capitalist world. My, my point is that that's something that can exist outside the realm of religion.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I see what you, I see what you mean, and again, I don't know the situation in Russia at all directly. Um, I mean, the, the thing that does come to my mind there, actually, when you say that, is a book by the psychotherapist Eric Fromm, who
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, wrote a book called The Fear of Freedom, um, and um, he made a point which is, you know, quite generalizable, um, that actually um, there's something quite scary about, as it were. Um, taking responsibility for your own life um, rather than feeling part of a group um, that is guiding your life. Um, and uh, I think that whatever that group might be, whether it be a religious group or a secular group, um, one shaped by an ideology, um, you know, th- there is a kind of comfort in that. There's no two ways about it. Um, and to find yourself on an edge or um, stranded, um, uh, Feeling alienated from, uh, you know, from party or place. Um, there's something that's quite uh, scary about that. Um, but that freedom, you might say, um, is also an opportunity to discover something deeper about yourself, which ultimately, I, I would argue, is. Located in a spiritual aspect of who we are, um, rather than, say, in a political aspect or an economic aspect of who we are.
1: I want to just play a short clip from you actually from Sam Harris, who I think is regarded as maybe the high priest of the uh, new atheists, if that's not a contradiction. And it kind of gets at something that I feel about a lot of religions. so I'll play you the clip first, and this is Sam Harris, who's gone into a bookstore and closed his eyes, pulled a book at random from a shelf in the bookstore and it happens to be a recipe book and he pulls out a recipe at random from the recipe book
3: and he interprets it in what he sees as a religious way. And therein I discovered an as-yet uncelebrated mystical treatise. While it appears to be a recipe for wok seared fish and shrimp cakes with ogo tomato relish, we need only study its list of ingredients to know that we are in the presence of an unrivaled spiritual intelligence. And then I go through with a a mystical interpretation of this recipe. The snapper filet, of course, is the individual himself, you and I, awash in the sea of existence. And here we find it cubed, which is to say that our situation must be remedied in all three dimensions of body, mind, and spirit. Now you have three teaspoons of chopped scallions. This further partakes of the cubic symmetry, suggesting that that which we need add to each level of our being by way of antidote comes likewise in equal proportions. The import of the passage is clear. The body, mind, and spirit need to be tended with the same care. Salt and freshly ground black pepper. Well, here we have the perennial invocation of opposites, the white and black aspects of our nature. Uh, Maybe
1: you're rolling your eyes or you're feeling terribly impatient with me, Mark. But when I hear that, and it's kind of, obviously he's making fun of religion but that's not terribly different to how an awful lot of uh, theology sounds to me. Am I missing something completely?
2: I I actually thought it was quite a sympathetic account of how we do need to um, feed, you might say, um, season, you might say, different aspects of our being. Um, uh, I I was expecting something quite aggressive from Sam Harris, although he's, he's quite a complicated chap himself, actually. I mean, he's someone who's very into meditation and, much to my surprise, will sometimes even talk about paranormal experiences and telepathic experiences that he has in meditation. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, he's a complicated chap. I don't, I have myself don't always, uh, find him to be this kind of, uh, you know, atheist, aggressive kind of chap that he's sometimes presented as, I, I believe he can do that at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he's, I, th- I for me, he's someone, okay. He's, he doesn't like the church and doesn't like religion. I'm not particularly, uh, you know, enamoured of that side of institutional uh, religiosity himself either, but I, I, I find in him quite a lot of interest in the spiritual dimension of life. In fact,
1: I, Mark, I think you and I come from this from completely different points of view, and and really the the, the question that I wanted to ask or the, the what I wanted you to explore there was that when I hear a lot of theology and a lot of the things you're expert in, they sound ridiculous to me. And they sound like those type of interpretations could be imposed literally on any text, including a recipe for for fried fish. And I think anybody who's old enough to remember Monty Python will remember uh, their parodies of religion as well. And the reason I'm interested to talk to you is I'm just wondering, is there something there that I'm missing? Is there... Anything beyond a sober enunciation of what uh, either Monty Python or Sam Harris parody?
2: I, I mean, in a way, I think the parodies do us a service because the thing that is always talked about uh, when these multiple levels of interpretation um, are, you know, are um, pursued, um, you know, right going right back through Thomas Aquinas, right back to Augustine in the Western tradition—the one I happen to know—is um, the key element of discernment. Um, It is easy to spin off different readings, different interpretations. Um, But what is always required is discerning um, what might be one that not so much is true in a sort of absolute sense, but the one that takes you a useful next step. Um, And by useful next step, I think they meant one that um, perhaps uh, leads to the sense of life expanding, um, maybe uh, leads to an ethical change in you, one that makes you, um, say, more compassionate towards others. Um, one that, as it were uh, expands your your perception of things um so that your uh, your you might say your knowledge of the world grows. Um, now, Monty Python is hilarious, and it's got some actually quite sharp points to make about, um, about religion from, from time to time as well, particularly the group dynamics of mm-hmm. religion. You know, I love the line, um, you know, um, you're all individuals, and then the crowd chatting back, yes, we're all individuals. Um, you know, it, that's, it's brilliant. About A- apart dynamic. from the
1: one who says, I'm not. Leave that Welsh part alone.
3: I don't really
0: want to. <laughs>
1: I've
2: got one or two things to say.
1: Tell us, tell us one of them.
2: Look, you've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You've got to think for
1: yourselves. You're all individuals.
3: Yes, we're all.
2: Yeah, then the one who stands up and says, I'm not the individual. Um, but, uh, you know, this is not new. Uh, this is, you know, human beings in the medieval period and the and late antiquity, going back to uh, Plato, you know, who where, the person I said in my my PhD, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they knew all this. <laughs> I, I think in some ways it's a kind of ignorance of our own times, again, which comes from a kind of scientific arrogance that somehow we've assumed that everything that came before about the 17th century isn't really worth engaging with. I mean, I, I find that astonishing, to be honest. Um, you know, but then, you know, that is part of the times which I think we have lived in, but people are realising there's a lot more um, that we've perhaps missed out on because of a kind of modernist... Um, ignorance, throw arrogance.
1: But, but, but is what people are seeing, for example, in those texts, is there anything that's actually legitimately in the text rather than in the person? Are we really just looking at, you know, clouds on a summer sky and, and seeing shapes?
2: Well, you see, again, if you, you know, read any kind of instruction to sort of how to read the Bible in, say, the 10th century, <laughs> any, any one of any, any serious weight, the mm-hmm. first thing they would tell you is the meaning is not in the text. Um, how could it possibly be the meanings in the text? The text as itself is just a kind of me- channel that's trying to speak to you from the other side of the text. The meaning is in um, the engagement between you, who you are and um, between the text, for sure, but then between the spirit um, that's communicated through the text. Um, so the meaning forms, as it were, in your life. Okay, pause, pause,
1: pause, pause, Mark, pause. Uh, than, how uh, how, how, can, an, we be the, how can we be sure that what you call the spirit is not just projection?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a rather very good point. I mean, I guess ultimately it's a kind of pragmatic uh, response to that, that people find that engaging with these texts in rich ways enlarges their life. It opens things up to them. I mean, for one thing, it opens up um, modern science mm-hmm. because people felt that by discerning with these texts, um, they became more and more alert to the kind of patterns and the rational principles that are, that can be found through reality um, and and, and, that, and that their minds can kind of resonate with that. Um, You you know it in one of these texts. These these kind of texts are texts which you can return to time and time time again. And every time they show you something new or they open up something that you hadn't quite considered before. But Um, I I know people who
1: say that. I know people who say that of the Harry Potter books.
2: Yeah, and 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 I'm, I'm happy with that. I think that part of what... A genius writer like J.K. Rowling does is resonate with these deeper levels of reality. Um, It happens in Shakespeare, it happens in Plato, but I don't particularly mind that it happens in in more texts than just the biblical texts. Again, you know, to my mind, of of course it would. Um, You know, we're talking about a reality that exceeds any one particular book. Although many people do find the Bible, as one particular book, particularly productive and fruitful.
1: That's a, that's a fair point, and I accept what you're saying, and you seem to be relatively liberal on that. But address what I guess Sam Harris would say at this point, in that while you know you may say that both Harry Potter and Plato and the Bible may allow people to, to have those experiences and make those connections, only the Bible to, uh, has persuaded people to cut other people's heads off
2: well, that's just not true. I mean, come on. (laughs) Again, that's a historical fact. People have cut others' heads off for all sorts of reasons. They've done it where they've never even read the Bible, for starters.
1: Yes, but in terms of transcendental, going beyond even religion, in terms of transcendental texts, uh, the monotheistic holy books have a pretty bad reputation.
2: I think that that ultimately comes from who we are as human beings. I mean, you know, a, a
1: Ah no! Hold on! Hold on! Hold on! No! 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 People, uh-huh. y- you know, people get those get get that value out of Harry Potter. That's who you know. Human beings read that as well. Nobody, uh, nobody straps on a suicide belt because of what they read in Harry Potter.
2: No. Um, maybe what see what a text has to do is it has to connect with something deep inside yourself mm-hmm. in order to make you act. If a text didn't connect with something inside yourself, it would you you might not even realize you've read it. It was, it were, would just wash over you like water off a duck's back. But if a text can connect with something deep inside yourself, then it can activate that side. Um, And, you know, the psychotherapist immediately knows that there's massively aggressive um, and um, deadly hating um, aspects to who we are as human beings as well. Mm -hmm. And any powerful text, I think, can activate those uh, parts of us as well. And the Bible certainly can do that. But not just the Bible. I think Um, certainly other religious texts can do that. Um, and, uh, well, you know, you, you mentioned Russia earlier on. Clearly, um, uh, secular um, communist texts can, uh, can do that as well. We um, you know witness to gulags and so on.
1: Mark Vernon, psychotherapist and writer, uh, author of uh, A Secret History of Christianity, coming out in August. Thank you very much for talking to me.
0: Thank you. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com.
1: Go to the website for links and sources for what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Mark Vernon at Plato Podcasts. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. Also, thanks to everyone who signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you can do the same as the people who've already signed up and donate a book or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's June 24th, I'll be talking to Greg Shupak, the author of The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.